بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Is everyone well? Alhamdulillah. So, I thought to begin tonight with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaytanir Rajeem Huwa Allahu Alladhi La Ilaha Illa Hu Alimul Ghaybi Wa Shahada Huwa Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الملك القدوس السلام المؤمن المهيمن العزيز الجبار المتكبر سبحانه عما يشركون So in these ayat that I recited from Surah Al-Hashar we see a particular order for some of the divine names. And this order is also found in the famous narration which mentions the 99 names. That hadith which mentions the list of the 99 names begins with the same names mentioned in Surah Al-Hashar. So we covered the meaning of the supreme name, Allah Jalla Jalaluhu. And then we talked about Ar-Rahman and then Ar-Rahim. And we spoke about Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, As-Salam, Al-Mu'min. Last week we spoke about the name Al-Salam and Al-Mu'min. So tonight, inshallah, we're going to talk about the next two names in that ayah. Al-Muhaymin and Al-Aziz. Al-Muhaymin and Al-Aziz. So we start with Al-Muhaymin and... If there is a good translation for that name, we might say it is the guardian, the guardian. And you could translate it in different ways because this name can be understood in different ways. So when we look at this name, Al-Muhaymin, the guardian, it comes from the Arabic verb, Haymana, Haymana. In Arabic, haymana means to guard, hence the guardian. It means to watch, to watch closely over something. It means to observe. It means to control, to keep an eye on. So it has all of these meanings, haymana. And when we go into the works of our great scholars who have commented on the meanings of these divine names, we find that some of them say that the name al-muhaymin is basically has, with the same meaning as the name Ash-Shaheed, or the witness. And this is a reference to the divine knowledge. So Al-Muhaymin as the observer. So observing and witnessing. These are two different ways of describing the divine knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. 
So some say it is nearly synonymous with the name al-shaheed or the witness. Some say that al-muhaymin is nearly synonymous with another divine name, al-raqib, which means the watchful. And we'll get to that name later on, inshallah. Some say it is nearly synonymous with the name al-hafil, because you can also translate al-hafil as the guardian. Or you could say it means the protector. So they're nearly synonymous with each other. Some have said that the name Al-Muhaymin means the one who grants security. And those who take this position say that Al-Muhaymin is nearly synonymous with the name we covered last week, Al-Mu'min. And lastly, some of the ulama say that Al-Muhaymin means the one who encompasses everything with his knowledge, wisdom, and power. That's a very comprehensive meaning. And all of these are correct. So this kind of difference that you see is not an oppositional difference, right? Because we've noted this a couple of times before. Sometimes you have different opinions about what something means. And sometimes those differences are differences of variation. And sometimes those are substantial differences. They cannot be reconciled. So when we talked about the tafsir of uh, the straight path, we mentioned that when you go to the early works of tafsir, different mufassirun from the tabi'un in the second and third generations and beyond will say, the Sirat al-Mustaqim is the Qur'an. Some will say, as Sirat al-Mustaqim is the Sunnah. Some will say, it's, it is Islam. Some will say, it is the Prophet And they're all correct. Because they're looking at it from a particular vantage point. And this is called, ikhtilaf uh, tanawwar. It is a difference of variation. Not, ikhtilaf al-tadad. Or, difference of opposition where if one is right the other has to be wrong so they're all correct in, depending on how you look at the meaning of one the verb heymana and the name of the one who has that action of watching observing controlling and so on and so forth now when we look at the meanings we have the words of Sheikh Ahmad Zarruq as well as Sheikh Ahmad bin Ajiba. In their commentaries, they say that the best of what has been said regarding the name Al-Muhaymin, so they're, they're taking a, preferred, a view they consider to be the most preferable. The best of, of what has been said regarding the name Al-Muhaymin is that he, Subhana, is the witness who encompasses the internal depths of what he witnesses, right? And we'll get to this later when we talk about the name Al-Alim and Al-Shaheed and Al-Samir and Al-Basir. When we talk about the meaning of divine knowledge. But, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَثْلُ الْأَعْلَى As Allah Ta'ala says, to Allah belongs the highest example. If you take a witness among human beings, they witness the outward of something. They witness it from their own particular vantage point. Person A 
does something to person B, and they saw it. But in seeing it, they only see it from their particular vantage point, and they only see the external. But the real shaheed, the real witness, al-muhaymin, witnesses and encompasses the internal depths of what he witnesses, not just the external, all aspects. And he says that this quality belongs exclusively to the real witness, Allah, due to his absolute and encompassing knowledge of what he witnesses. So you see here, Shaykh Ahmed ibn Ajiba and Shaykh Ahmed Zarruq are inclining to the view that Al-Muhaymin is nearly synonymous with Al-Shaheed, the witness. And the other views are valid as well. So they say that as the guardian, Al-Muhaymin, Allah Ta'ala observes his creation and oversees their development. To oversee the development, to nurture, that is one of the meanings of Ar-Rabb. He also observes their good deeds and he rewards them for their good. And he observes their sins exactly, not adding anything to their punishment. So when Allah rewards for good, he rewards manifold rewards, even more than the deed itself out of his generosity. But when he observes the sin, if he decides, if he wills to punish someone for a sin, it is only in the measure of the sin. It's not more than what the sin entailed by his wisdom. So these are aspects of the meaning of al-muhaymin. Now, when we go into the works of the other scholars, we find really interesting reflections on this name. We have the words of Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. In his Al-Maqsad Al-Asna, his commentary on the 99 names, he says about Al-Muhaymin, he is the one who tends to his creation with regard to their actions, their provision, and the time of their death. This is what he says about Al-Muhaymin. Imam Ibn Barrajan, he says, He, Allah, is Al-Mu'min, who is Muhaymin over every believer. So he's pairing the two names. Who is Muhaymin over every believer, watchful, guarding, observing every believer. And he is Al-Kareem, the generous, who is Muhaymin over every Kareem. And he is Ar-Rahim, who is Muhaymin over every Rahim, every merciful person. And he is Al-Halim, who is Muhaymin over every Halim, every forbearing person. So what, what he's getting at is that the name Al-Muhaymin, uh, beyond just saying uh, watching or observing, is also the aspect of what we would call in today's time quality control. You know what quality control is, right? If you have a factory, you have uh, some company building advanced electronics, you're going to have someone who's the head of quality control. What is his job? His job is to watch, to oversee, to observe, to make sure that those products are being made according to the standards that the company has set in their policies. It has to be this way. It cannot have this. It cannot have that. It has to be uh, within, a, within certain parameters. And if it's not, then 
there's going to be a consequence. So quality control, that, that meaning uh, does uh, show up when we look at the meaning of Al-Muhaymin, both as a divine name, as well as a description of the Qur'an, as we'll soon see. So Muhaymin is the one watching over. Now going to the Qur'an, and this is where I think I'll have to minimize this slightly. Second, maybe even less. Ah, yeah, I'll use the arrow key. All right, so going to this slide, uh, the Quran is described as Muhammad too. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala He says in Surah Al Maidah, "وَأَنْزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ بِالْحَقِّ." مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَمُهَيْمِنًا عَلَيْهِ He says that we have revealed to you this book with the truth as a confirmation of the previous scriptures and a supreme authority on them. Now that's one way you can translate it. مُهَيْمِنًا عَلَيْهِ So basically, Allah Ta'ala is telling us that he revealed the Qur'an to the heart of the Prophet ﷺ in truth as a confirmation of the previous scriptures as well as a muhaymin over the previous scriptures, quality control. So what is true from the previous scriptures is confirmed in the Qur'an. The things that have been interpolated or added are rejected. The things that are not from the original scriptures that are apocryphal, those things are negated. It is muhaymin over the previous scriptures. The Imam Al-Alusi, rahimahullah, he talks about this in his tafsir, Ruh Al-Ma'ani. He says, the Qur'an was revealed as a watchful authority, muhaymin, a watchful authority over the other heavenly scriptures that are protected from corruption. It attests to their soundness, and confirms the foundations and branches of their laws and specifies which of them are abrogated. So from in his view, it is muhaymin over the other scriptures, clarifying what of the previous scriptures still stands and which of those rules, rulings in the previous scriptures are no longer applicable because they are abrogated by the Qur'an and the rulings in the Qur'an. So the Qur'an is an authority that attests to the previous scriptures and is not the other way around. It's not the other way around. In this way, we also say that the Prophet ﷺ is muhaymin in the sense that we confirm other truth claims based on whether they line up with his guidance and what he has said. Where does this show up? It shows up in subtle ways. A person might see an article. They're surfing the web and they see an article that talks about, I don't know, the, I don't know, the, the medical qualities of the miswak. Right? There's an article someone writes about the medical qualities of the miswak. And they say, see, this confirms the benefit of the miswak. And that may be true, that it has those medical benefits, 
but we don't rely on that to confirm the benefits of the miswak. It is the Prophet ﷺ who confirms this. And this just, it, it, it comes afterwards and confirms, but it's not confirming the sunnah. The sunnah confirms that that is true. That's how it works. So the Qur'an is muhayman as Allah Ta'ala describes it. We now get to that part where we look at how we connect devotionally to the name Al-Muhaymin, how we cultivate its meaning in our character, and how we attain realization of this name Al-Muhaymin. And these are coming from the words of Shaykh Ahmed ibn Ajiba. He says, you should connect with this name, Al-Muhaymin, by asking Allah for Iman that will make you vigilant of Him. Why does he say that? Because Muhaymin means to observe, to watch closely, to stand as guardian over something. So from that, those meanings, you derive this notion of muraqaba, of vigilance, of being watchful over something. So because Allah is al-Muhaymin, the one who observes and watches carefully uh, over creation, we ask al-Muhaymin to make us vigilant of him and to give us haya, haya, modesty and shame that prevents us from going against his commands. So, so it's the meaning of the name, and we're, we're asking Allah for that quality, you know, that, that we're vigilant over ourselves, and that from that vigilance we're aware, and we have shame from going against his commands. Now, Imam al-Sunusi, who has a very brief commentary on the 99 names, he says about this name, that the nasib or the share of the abd, the servant, the share of the servant of this name is in submitting to Allah's judgment and being vigilant towards Him in one's movement and stillness, outwardly and inwardly, knowing that He encompasses Him in His divine knowledge, power, and wisdom. So our share is kind of like the takhalluq aspect. It is knowing, submitting to the one and being vigilant towards the one who is aware of our movement and our stillness, aware of us inwardly and outwardly in every aspect of our being, knowing that he encompasses us with his divine knowledge, his divine power, and his divine wisdom. Now for cultivation... We remember that cultivation, what's the word for that in Arabic? Takhalluq. Takhalluq from akhlaq, character. Inculcating character. So cultivating character. He says you should cultivate this name in your character by standing as a guardian over yourself. Right? So if you are Muhaymin with a lowercase m, right? Not in the app, not El Muhaymin, obviously, but a lowercase m Muhaymin over yourself. What does that mean? It means that you are a guardian over yourself. You're watching over yourself by what? By muhasaba, by taking it to account, the self audit. 
by watching over it vigilantly in all of its states, knowing that nothing is hidden to Allah. And by taking all of your needs to Allah and being sufficed by His observance of you, knowing that He is a watcher over you and a protector. So there's actually two elements there. There's one watching over yourself, and there's also cultivating that deep awareness that He is watching over you. And that watching is not just recording your bad deeds. It's recording your good deeds, your internal states, as well as your needs in this life. Knowing that He's watching over you externally and internally and knows those needs. So He is a protector of you, a guardian over you. That is how you cultivate it in character. For realization, at tahakkuk he says that you will realize this name. And again, by realization, what do we mean? We mean that the person has uh, developed themselves to such an extent by Allah's aid that they have experiential knowledge of the name. He says you'll realize this name within you when vigilance settles firmly in your heart to the point that you almost never have an evil thought. Because you're so watchful, you're constantly vigilant. There's, there's constant quality control over what's inside and outside, what you say, what you do with your limbs, and all of these aspects of you. That is what he means by tahakkuk. That that vigilance becomes your reality. Not a temporary thing when your iman's really high and then it goes away. No, it's a, it's a constant thing. So that is, of course, the highest rung of the ladder. We have the connection, which is dua. You have the cultivation, which is the work. But then you have the realization, which is, that's when the first two become a part of you for, for a while. And that, of course, as we said last week and probably the weeks before, this is a description of the furthest reaches of the path. Uh, I don't go over this to make any claim for myself. Now, I was going to skip this slide simply because we kind of talked about the issue of muraqaba already. So we come now to the next name. The name after Al-Muhaymin in Surah Al-Hashar is Al-Aziz. Al-Aziz. What's the translation of Al-Aziz? Who knows? Hmm? So how would we translate Al-Aziz? The, the Almighty, the Exalted. Anything else? The Almighty, the Exalted. Anything else comes to mind? Don't worry. I have a whole list here. There's a bunch of different ways you could translate the name Al-Aziz. And they're all correct. You know, people say, oh, English is a very poor language. It's very inadequate for complex... No, that's not true at all. People who say that just don't know English well enough. English is a very rich language, alhamdulillah. Al-Aziz can be translated in different ways. The Almighty, the Eminent, the Exalted, the Glorious, the Incomparable, the Ineffable, the one beyond 
comprehension. The transcendent, that's similar to Al-Quddus and As-Salam. And the esteemed, the one who, uh, the one that is esteemed. Now all of these names, all of these are possible translations of Al-Aziz. They're all correct and they're coming from a certain vantage point, looking at the meaning of the root word, which is Azza. Azza is a, it's a trilateral root, although you see, you see two letters there. The Shadda counts as a letter. It's from Ain, Zay, Zay. When you take the two, uh, the two letters, the, the, two, the identical letters, you merge them with Shadda, uh, Idgham. So you say Azza, like Hajja as a verb, is from Hajaja, Hajja. So Azza is from Ain, Zay, Zay. And when you look in the Arabic dictionary, you find that this root has the meaning of to become strong, to become powerful, to be respected and esteemed. It also has the meaning of rarity, to be rare or to be scarce. It also has the meaning of to be cherished and precious. And we see that in Surah Tawbah. Uh, in the, the last two verses of Surah Tawbah, we have لَقَدْ أَجَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ بَعْنِتُمْ Certainly there has come to you a messenger from yourselves. عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَعَنِتُمْ Which means, uh, here you could translate that in different ways, but you're very precious to him such that when you suffer, it, it causes him distress and it grieves him that you should suffer because you're so precious. Azizun alayhi ma'anitum. What you're dealing with, what you're struggling with, is aziz to him. Meaning you're very precious in his sight. So to be cherished, to be precious, to be rare or scarce, to be strong, powerful, and respected. So this is where we get into something really profound. And Imam al-Ghazali, subhanAllah, tabarakAllah, he, he really explains Aziz in one of the most beautiful ways I've ever encountered. And he says in his commentary that Al-Aziz is the one who is so significant that few exist like him, Yet he is also one for whom there is intense need, as well as one to whom access proves difficult. Unless these three meanings are combined, the term Aziz will not be used. So he, when he's talking about Aziz here, he's not talking about the divine name yet. He's talking about the word Aziz itself. So. You could say different things are Aziz from different vantage points. So he says that three things have to be in place before something can be called Aziz. Few exist like him or it. There's intense need for that person or that thing, number two. And number three, uh, access to that person or that thing is difficult. When you have those three meanings combined, that person or that thing 
that being is Aziz. So now he looks at how these three come together to explain the, the meaning of Al-Aziz, the Almighty. He says, there's many things in the world whose existence is rare, but they're of little importance or not much use. Those things you cannot call Aziz, right? And I, I can't think of any example, but you could think of something that, it, that is rare. Okay, I have one. It just came to mind. Um, a 1925 uh, baseball card of so-and-so who played center field in 1925. And there's only two, cop two, two of these baseball cards in existence. Really hard to find. They're really rare. But do you really need it? No. Not, it, so it's not Aziz. It's not really Aziz. Because they're not of much use. Now one could argue it's of much use if it's going to get you $50,000, but you get what I'm saying. Imam al-Ghazali goes on to say, there's also many things whose significance is great, whose benefit is abundant, and whose equal does not exist. Yet if access to them is not difficult, they're not called Aziz. Then he uses the example of the sun. The sun, as well as the earth, have no equal. The benefit from them is abundant, and the need for them is intense. But neither of them is described as Aziz, because access to observing them is not difficult. So the sun, we need it, right? There's only one. But do you have a difficulty with accessing the sun? Don't respond by saying that we're in the winter and you don't see the sun. We know that's not what it means. Because even when the sun is clouded, uh, clouded over, we're still receiving the rays of the sun. That's why you still get benefit from the sun and going outside even if it's clouded even if it's covered by clouds. But access to the sun is not difficult, even though it's a, we have a great need for it and it's exceedingly rare, but you can access it. So it's not called Aziz for that reason. So then he puts all of these three together. So rareness, preciousness, and difficulty of access. Those three have to be together for something to be Aziz. So he says, with regards to rareness, only Allah is wajibul wujud, the necessary existence. Even if the sun is one in actuality, it's not really unique because it is a possible being and it's possible for there to be more than one sun. And there are more suns than ours if you go further out. So rareness in that sense, only applies to Allah Ta'ala because He is the necessary being. Preciousness. He says, everything in existence is in need of Allah, so only He fulfills this meaning ultimately. He is the only one unto whom everything in the cosmos stands in utter need. Nothing else. 
And number three, difficulty of access. He says this is in the sense of comprehending his essence. Azizul Madarak. In the sense of comprehending his essence. Now this one requires a little bit of commentary. Because when you say difficulty of access, that, that doesn't mean it's difficult to get close to Allah. What that is talking about is having a comprehension of his essence. And that is beyond the ability of any creation. Azizul Madarak. So no one has all-encompassing knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what he's saying here is not about uh, any difficulty in getting close to Allah Ta'ala. He's talking about having encompassing knowledge of uh, what, what in Arabic we would say is kunhudhat, uh, right? the, the, the ultimate reality of the divine essence. That is beyond any created capacity. But one of the great uh, shuyukh from Algeria, Sheikh Ahmad bin Mustafa al-Alawi, he says in one of his aphorisms, that the false teacher, the false teacher is the one who says to you that getting close to Allah is nearly impossible. You know, that person who says, oh, you're just so bad and there's just no way you could really become close to Allah Ta'ala and be among his cherished servants. That person is a false teacher because Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is not difficult to please. It is not difficult to draw nearer to Allah Ta'ala. And we have the road map in the Hadith Qudsi when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says that Allah says in the Hadith Qudsi, my servant does not draw near to me with anything more beloved than, than what? Who knows? than that which I've made obligatory on him. And then my servant continues to draw near to me with what? Nawafil, with the voluntary things, hatta until what? Uhibba, until I love him. And when I love him, I become his hearing by which he hears, his sight by which he sees, his hand by which he grasps, and his foot by which he walks. And were he to ask me, I would certainly give him. And were he to seek security or protection from, uh, in me, I would certainly protect him. The roadmap is right there. Getting close to Allah, it's really three things. Number one is knowledge. Because you can't know what is fard, and you can't know what is voluntary and the difference between the two without knowledge. So, Fardain, knowledge, and then the other things you have to know, or should know. What's next? Practicing it. Because the person knows, and then they act on it. So they fulfill the obligations, and then they continue to draw near to, to Allah Ta'ala with voluntary things, until, hatta uhibba, until I love him. So there's knowledge, there's practice, and then when those two are combined, the hadith tells us what happens, and that is the resultant spiritual state whereby their, their, their listening and hearing, their, their sight is by Allah, for Allah, with awareness of Allah, 
consciousness of Allah, their walking and their grasping is for Allah, by Allah, with awareness of Allah. And those things give them, guess what? Those experiences give them more knowledge. And then with that extra knowledge they've received, what are they going to do with that knowledge? They're going to practice that too. And as they practice that, guess what happens? They receive more. And it becomes this, we don't say vicious circle, it becomes a, a, a beautiful circle. And this all comes from a hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, مَنْ عَمِلَ بِعِلْمِهِ أَوْرَثَهُ اللَّهُ عِلْمَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمُ Whoever acts upon what he knows, Allah will bequeath him with knowledge that he did not know. And then that circle, it continues, because now with that extra knowledge, they're acting on that, and with that practice, they are bequeathed with even more. And then they practice that, and then they bequeathed with more. And it goes on and on, and that is the process. So it's not that Allah is difficult to please. What Imam al-Ghazali is getting at is that Allah Ta'ala is Aziz al-Madra, meaning there's no way you can access, meaning you have to have knowledge, encompassing knowledge of the reality of the divine essence. This is not within the possibility of uh, created beings because the finite cannot have encompassing knowledge of the infinite. The relative cannot have absolute knowledge of the absolute. It doesn't work that way. The hadith cannot have that with regard to the qadim. So that's what he says about the meaning of al-aziz. Now going to the three levels, the connection, the cultivation, and the realization. This is coming from the words of Sheikh Ahmad ibn Ajiba al-Hasani, rahimahullah. He says you should connect with this name Al-Aziz by seeking guidance to the Asbabul Izza, the means of honor. So he's using the word Izza, and Aziz is a similar word from that root, the means of honor. So you're asking, Ya Aziz, guide me to the means of honor. And by attaching yourself to the company, of those whose honor is by Allah. Their honor is not by anything else. Who are these people? These are the people of obedience and iman, the people of mahabba and ma'rifa, of love and deep knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. Right? And Allah Ta'ala says, whosoever desires honor, then to Allah belongs all honor. Izzatu lillah. So this is basically turning to Al-Aziz and asking him to give us guidance to the means of honor for ourselves and to guide us to have the company of the people whose honor is by Allah, is not by anything else. For cultivation, inculcating the meaning of this in character, he says you should cultivate this name in your character by placing your ambition and here, ambition, you could say is himma, right? That's an Urdu word, right? Okay, himma. Placing your himma beyond the domain of creation, right? Most people, this is the reality. Their himma, what, what little himma they have, it is himma towards created things. 
right? And it's not always bad, but if it's limited to that, then it's bad, right? He says, by placing your himma beyond the domain of creation, while relying upon the true king, al-malik al-haq, for that is the result of having honor by Allah and a cause of receiving increase from him. So to put this in simpler terms, it is by making sure that your himma is focused towards what is pleasing to Allah, what is oriented towards the akhirah, what is enduring for all eternity. Right? So when you have any himma that is directed towards dunya, it is using the dunya as the tool, as the means for journeying to the hereafter, not the dunya for its own sake. And he quotes Ibn Ata'illah, a secondary who mentions in his Al-Hikam, if you want a glory, an izz, that does not vanish, then do not exult in a glory that vanishes. And if you want eternal glory, you want izza forever, then don't be so proud about the, the little izza that you have in your position or your rank in dunya, which is going to vanish as soon as you die, or maybe, maybe even vanish before you die. Don't make your source of honor that limited thing which is fading away. Make Allah your means of izza. Your honor, al-izzatu lillah. Honor is for Allah. And we are to have izza billah, right? Honor, uh, ambition towards him subhanahu wa ta'ala. For realization, and I wanted to edit this slide beforehand, but I didn't get a chance. Uh, realization, he says, you realize this name experientially by becoming annihilated in the one in whom you take pride, so that you do not give even a furtive glance to the glory of any other besides him, no matter who it may be. Now what this means, you know, the word annihilated is actually a technical term, uh, and I would perhaps reword that and say, uh, by becoming fixated and extremely focused, uh, on the one in whom you take pride, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, you're so focused on Allah as the source of izzah and taking the means of izzah that endures through the hereafter that you're not even glancing at the so-called glory of anyone else, right? And there's, there's a lot of statements in early Islamic history that illustrates this where you have a poor person who's a very pious individual who comes in contact with a prince. And the prince says something to him out of arrogance, make way for the prince. And this poor man says, well, your slaves, uh, uh, you, uh, your masters are my slaves. Now, does the prince have a master? In, in, in real life, does a, does a prince have a master? No, the prince is the prince. So the prince got angry, and he wanted to do something to this man. He says, what are you talking about? 
How do you mean, my masters are your slaves? And he says, well, you are a slave to your passions and your ego. But I have humbled myself and I have gained control over those things within me. So they're actually serving me. I'm not serving them. So my ego, my desires, these things I have control. So they're now my servants. But for you, they're your masters because you have no control. So your, your passions have you do whatever you want to do. Because you're the prince. You have the means to do all of that. So this is what he was saying. And you notice that this guy didn't feel so enamored by the prince. right? Because his izzah was with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the real source of izzah. And I want to end on just a note about being aziz. What it means to be aziz. And this is a reflection from Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. He says that one who is aziz among people, one is aziz among people, when Allah's people have need of him in matters most important to them, like the next life and eternal happiness. That is exceedingly rare and difficult to attain except by those who hold the rank of prophet. Their eminence is shared with those who in their time are distinguished by being close to their level, like the caliphs and the prophets' heirs among the scholars. So what is Aziz again? They're rare. One has intense need for them. And the access is not so easy, right? So he's saying that the person who is Aziz is the one uh, to whom others really need for their afterworldly concerns, concerns about deen, matters of eternal happiness. He says that it's exceedingly rare and difficult to attain that, except those who have the rank of Nubuwa. Because the prophets are Aziz in that sense. Because if you look at the history of humanity, if you take the hadith recorded by Ibn Majah, there were 124,000 prophets. Right? So there's not a lot of them. But people are in dire need of the guidance that Allah gives those prophets. And they're not that easy to access because they're scattered. They're here and there across humanity and the world. He says, uh, their eminence is shared with those who in their own time are distinguished by being close to their level, such as the Khulafa and the Warathatul Anbiya, the heirs of the prophets among the ulama. So I think there's a lesson there for all of us in that if we become a source of religious knowledge and value for our loved ones and our community and people we know, we become in a sense Aziz vis-a-vis those people. And by being Aziz like that, it, it's, a, it's a high rank to be a person who helps other people, guides other people, advises other people, uh, to whom others go to for advice and they feel that their, their counsel, their experience is valued and there's not a lot of people like them. 
And for that reason, we're going to seek them out, right? That is the person who's truly Aziz. So what we're actually doing here is drawing knowledge from those people who are Aziz. And we're sharing what those people who are Aziz have said about Al-Aziz, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So anything that we gain of knowledge about Al-Aziz is coming through the means of these people who are Aziz in their own respect. And we can be Aziz in that sense if we become invaluable to those in our lives through gaining knowledge, practice, experience, and hopefully over time, wisdom. Wallahu wa rasooluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Yes. Yes, you can use it as an adjective. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, the question then becomes how do you deal with these problems within your ego? Right? You identify this fault and that fault, this character trait, that character trait. This disease of the heart, that disease of the heart. How do you deal with them? Well, in Islamic history, the the masters in that in, in this field, they have very broadly speaking, two approaches. You have what is called uh, al-tariq al-burhani, and you have al-tariq al-ishraq. So the path, the two paths can be explain using uh, a metaphor. Let's say you have a large backyard and through neglect your backyard is filled with weeds. All sorts of weeds choking out the flowers. What do you do? You have, using this analogy, you have two possible approaches. What do the weeds stand for in the metaphor? The diseases, right? There's so many all over. You have two possible approaches. You could, A, get outside, put on your work gloves, and bend down and rip up each individual weed from the root using force. You have to struggle to get it because they're deeply rooted. The root system spreads, but you know, you have to dig in a little bit. You rip one out, now you go to the next one. And you're working on that root system, you rip up that weed, you ripped it out. That's going to take a long time. And it's arduous, it's effort. That is one approach. Now the other approach to getting rid of the weeds is to 
I mean, we have weed killers now, don't we? But the, the analogy in the past was different. They didn't talk about weed killers. They said uh, you would basically cover the entire field with gasoline or fuel and light a single match and just watch it all burn. There's a little bit of effort there. You have to get the gas, you have to pour it, you have to light the match and watch it burn. But that takes a lot less time. It's a lot easier. And you can move on to other things eventually. So these two approaches are broadly what we have in the Islamic tradition about how to deal with problems. Now, what does that look like? The first way of pulling up the weeds is the path of mujahada. You're really struggling against yourself and doing, you identify the cause of the disease, what gives rise to it, and you try to cure it using the specific cure, and you struggle against your ego until you get rid of it and you sub- you know, you sublimate the nafs, you change it, change that bad quality to a good one. And then you go to the next one. But if we have dozens and dozens, how long is that going to take? It is an effort. The other approach is that, you know, the gasoline method, where you basically burn up all of the diseases almost all at once by cultivating such a deep level of gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, shukr, through dhikr and tafakkur and connecting with his book and ibadah, that the love overwhelms you, the gratitude overwhelms you so much that it essentially burns away the impulse to even get involved in those things. It just goes away. And... Obviously, when we're talking about hearts and diseases of the heart, it's not a simple A, B choice, right? There's a little bit of both, right? But those are the two approaches. And when it comes to a person's specific condition, uh, it's good, you know, just as if you're sick, you don't start Googling your symptoms because that's a really scary thing to do. Um, Likewise, if you have a specific problem that doesn't seem to go away, even though you try to get rid of it, you may need a, a more specific prescription to get rid of it. And that's where teachers, mashayikh, are involved, people who have some experience with that. And it's not, I mean, we do have general prescriptions that anybody can take, over-the-counter spiritual medicine. But then you have the prescriptions that are given, and you shouldn't self-prescribe. But here's the problem. Uh, we have over-the-counter medicines, to use another analogy, Uh, And we have our medicine cabinets full of them. Sometimes we're not taking the right medicine. And sometimes we get the prescriptions. You know a big problem with prescriptions? People get prescriptions, and there's studies on this. The the, the percentage of people who get prescriptions for a specific illness, and they take the medicine for one or two days, and then they don't finish the prescription. Right, And, And that's analogous to the specific prescriptions for specific spiritual problems. We know I have this problem of kibr. This is how I should be getting rid of it. Oh, that's the prescription. I do it for a day or two days and then I give up and do something else. So we have, we have all the medicine, on the medicine on, in the medicine cabinet, either over the counter and sometimes prescription. But we either take the wrong medicines or we take it for one or two days and we leave it there and we stop. So... So if you use that analogy, you can apply it to yourself and figure things out a little bit. Yeah, so that's a general answer to the question.
And it reminds me of a question that someone asked last week. And I said I was going to discuss it in detail. Um, but I have to beg your indulgence and pardon. Uh, I think maybe some, it's something worth addressing in a separate class altogether. Because um, there's, there's a lot of facets to the question. And we want to do it justice, inshallah. Yeah, maybe in the Ask the Imam session we can do that. Yeah. The, the question was about um, having a spiritual mentor. What, what that means, uh, can a person do it alone? Right? Inshallah will address that. I think in an Ask the Imam session, we should do that as a dedicated class. Inshallah. Mm-hmm. So that meaning of azizun alayhi ma'anittum, that is what the particular meaning of preciousness, of, of, of the sense that he, he deems you precious and cherished such that it pains him that you should suffer. So it's a very specific meaning of Aziz. Right. Yeah. So sometimes when we say Aziz as, uh, as precious, there's another word for precious in Arabic. Who knows the other word in Arabic for precious? It starts with a noon. Nafis. Nafis, right? So that ayah in Surah At-Tawbah, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ Certainly there's come to you a messenger from yourselves. In another canonical qira'ah, we recite it, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفَسِكُمْ Certainly there comes to you a messenger مِنْ أَنفَسِكُمْ from the most precious of you. So nafis, and the anfas, the most precious and most valued of you. So Aziz with this meaning of nafis. That's that's another aspect. A title, the title as as the I guess the minister of agriculture or the treasury. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You can say, yeah, yeah. Anta Aziz Ali. You're, you're very precious to me. Right? That's absolutely fine. All right. Inshallah. Until next week. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum.